0: We thought we'd start with talking some about what's compelling about this practice. You know, why why be interested in it? You're here, you're committing a day to it, and maybe more, maybe you've already committed some of your time and life to this practice. Um, so what's compelling about it? And for us, as We mentioned when we introduced ourselves. We we do many different practices It's not like we would advocate or even for ourselves do this practice only and never do anything else so different practices cultivate different things in the in the awareness and the mind stream and um, And this practice cultivates specific things that we'll talk about today, but we really you know we I feel like, in a way, we never planned on becoming Dharma teachers and we sort of were um, past a certain baton that we feel really honored and privileged to be carrying for however long we're teaching, um, of a practice that almost went into obscurity. For many, many years, this practice was only taught in the back hallways of monasteries and nowhere else. I mean, lay people like us and, and women, you know would never have had access to these teachings even up until I don't know the last 30 years or something so um, so this practice we're really happy to see that it is taking root in the West and lay people in Asia where it was also fairly hidden and um, and that it is an important part of an overall spiritual path and You know, as we've researched more and more about this practice, really for us, a lot of it comes down to the Buddha himself and what he practiced. And I remember years ago, it's probably been 20 years ago, I was sitting the month long um, here. And I was, you know, a yogi, and another yogi in one of the Dharma talks asked the teachers, well, shouldn't we be doing the same practice as the Buddha did in the sequence that he did them. And back then, nobody was really doing concentration practice. I mean, it was just starting to be talked about. And um, I don't even remember what the answer was, but I, I remember to this day that yogi's question. And, um, and the Buddha did, this was, these were the practices he did when he left the palace. That he looked around, and he had this burning desire to really know the truth of existence and the deeper uh, mysteries, really, of being human. And he went around and found the most evolved people he could find of his day, and those people were teaching concentration practice in the jhanas. And so he went to one teacher, and that person taught him the first through seventh jhana, and then a different teacher taught him the eighth jhana. And that was the practice he did. And at that point, he was sort of authorized to teach if you want to look at it that way and and he did for a while but he also felt there was more and so that became what he added to the teachings of the day that was unique that was his own and um, when he had his full enlightenment he looked around and after you know some period of time of just sort of being in that um, understanding and that experience he looked around for the people he thought could actually understand the profundity of what he had experienced, and the people with little dust in their eyes that he went to immediately were his two teachers. They were the ones that he felt had the clarity that the teachings that and the experience that he ended up, you know, really adding to what he learned could land with because they had enough purification of mind that it could actually be received. So. Um, but it wasn't only just up to the point of his enlightenment that the Buddha did these practices. He continued to do these practices through his whole life. I mean, this is a fully enlightened being who's still choosing to do these practices. Why was he doing that? I mean, we, don't, we can't know. We can only speculate why he did that. But he talked about these. If you actually read the suttas, we've heard scholars who have said that between sixty and eighty percent of the suttas, when the Buddhas asked about what should I practice from you know, lay people or monks, he's telling them to do this practice and vipassana. He's not just telling them just to do vipassana, he's telling them to do samatan concentration practice and to, to do the jhanas and and um, so you know there's a way where we're really happy that this has become reintroduced into the mainstream of Buddhism because it really mirrors much more what the Buddha actually practiced and taught himself throughout his whole life. And even before the Buddha, I mean, this is part of the interesting thing about this practice in particular, is that um, as Buddhism evolved, Of course, how does Buddhism differentiate itself from all the other practices being taught out there? Well, this practice was something that was already existing when the Buddha came along. And you know, there may be a way that the people who were advocating for Buddhism needed to kind of distance themselves from those practices, and um, that's understandable. But if you really look at the history, this practice goes back probably at least 5,000 years. So to me, that's really, you know, to us, that's that's really profound, that as long as humans have been at a level of consciousness and intelligence and awareness to start asking these questions about the mystery of existence of, you know, where did I come from and what's going to happen when I die? Is there something beyond just the body? And my personality, that I can know for myself. You know, I mean, this is one of the great things that we love about Buddhism. Is the Buddha said, "Don't take my word for it. Go and experience it yourself." And um, and this practice has endured for five thousand years. And there aren't many things in human history that have lasted that long. You know, sometimes we we joke that probably sex and taxes are the only other things that have lasted that long. So. You know, And there's a reason, because the effect on the consciousness, even as evolved as we are and as complicated as consciousness has become over what it was in ancient times, it still has the effect of uprooting a lot of the ways that we suffer, or um, allowing us to have space between our identification with the ways that we suffer and that deeper nature that's just really waiting for us to, for awareness to um, return to what we really are.
1: And in addition to the, the spiritual benefits, let's say, there's also very practical benefits to this meditation as a daily practice. And really, we, we live in a world that is very complicated, it's very fast-moving, there's lots of changes going on socially, uh, environmentally, just economically, there's just a lot happening. And this is a meditation that really invites, it really promotes serenity and allows serenity to really be steeped into our consciousness in a way that can be really arresting a place we can land. So it has a lot of great benefits there. It also is... You know, we think of meditation, learning different meditations, as like we have a, you know, a, a box of brushes, and each of the meditations is a specific kind of brush that when we need that particular brush for a certain segment of time, a few weeks or a month or more, we can pick up that brush and we can use it. So it really adds, in effect, to our skill set as meditators to learn uh, additional meditations that we feel drawn to do. So in that way, it's really a great practice to learn. And concentration, we get a lot of feedback and it's our experience that as you develop concentration, you can then bring that concentration to other practices. You can have the ability to really zero, zero in on whatever the meditative object or the practice you're doing. So it really helps to have that capacity, both as a meditator and then just in terms of your own consciousness. So it's very helpful. Some of the lesser-known or talked-about benefits of the meditation is uh, when we're doing this meditation, as some of the questions and comments we heard this morning, we start noticing the places and the patterns that take us away from being with the object. So we notice our thinking, we notice uh, some kind of lethargy, we can notice various distractions. And every time we leave those and come back, to knowing the breath as it's passing the anapana spot, we're lessening the grip of that pattern. We're lessening the compulsion of that pattern to where we're getting a little bit of space. We're creating some room between our process and whatever the distraction is. So it allows us, uh, you know, we call this purification of mind, and it's not our originating of the term. This is what the Buddha called the entire Samatha path, is purification of mind. And the Vipassana practices he called purification of view. So the purification of mind starts just simply by each time we return to the breath, knowing the breath in the present moment at the anapana spot, there is purification of mind developing because we're loosening that grip of our compulsion and our patterning. And part of that, as we loosen that grip and that attachment, that uh, identification really, with our, say, our thinking, there is a way that it loosens a little bit that sense of self, that attachment to the me that we have. So it really allows that quality, more of the no-self, to be invited into the experience also. So this really has a lot of great benefits. I say it there's the transcendent quality, there's the serenity, there's also the purification of mind and what we call the thinning of the me.
0: So within Theravada and Buddhism, then there's there's really three stages of the practice. So just to give you a sense of where this fits. Um, and that's sila, samatha, which is what we're teaching today, and vipassana. So sila is really living a wholesome life. A, a lot of times people will translate it as ethics or morality, and we don't like that so much because it kind of sounds rule-oriented. And, um, and that's not really... I mean, yes, we, we should place restrictions on harming others. So there's a real value to seeing it that way from that standpoint. But really, from a practice standpoint, it's am I living a wholesome life that's not accruing more karma and regrets? You know, Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters, who are two of the, of the teachers in this lineage that we respect a lot, talk about it as living in harmony without regret. So am I living in harmony with others, with myself, with the world? the environment um, without regret so that I don't have to have remorse so that when I sit down on the cushion I'm not just going over and over things I should have done that I didn't do or things I did that I shouldn't have done am I living a wholesome life and this is we'll talk at the at the end of the day about um, home practice but we really feel that no matter what practices one is doing that that Buddhists, and everybody really, we love that, but especially if, if one is undertaking the Buddhist path, that sila has to be a part of it. How are, how are we living our lives? What are we consuming in terms of media? What are we consuming in terms of the food we're eating? How are we impacting the environment and the people around us? So it's really a process of just being more and more in harmony on the outside of our lives, as an expression of what's happening on the inside so that's sila and then samatha is what we're talking about today so stephen said this is purification of mind is how it's referred to in some of the teachings and um we're developing serenity and concentration in this practice and uh we'll talk some a little bit later about yes sorry to interrupt um, I don't think it's from the root soma, so the question is, can we spell it? It's spelled S-A-M-A-T-H-A, so Samatha. And, and you'll also hear concentration practice talked about as Samadhi practice, so depending on the lineage of Theravada and Buddhism, some focus like the Burmese, talk more about Samatha. Within the Thai forest, they talk more about Samadhi. But basically, the word Samadhi means concentration, so Samatha is a little bit broader. Term, so you know, and also we were authorized in the Burmese tradition where they talk more about samatha. So, um, under
1: the umbrella, oops. under the umbrella of samatha, is, is the met, is the metta practices. Right, so, so, so those imp- are also samatha practices, right, right. yeah. So a lot, of you, a lot of you are familiar with those practices.
0: Yeah, all of, everyone who raised your hands about right. doing metta, you know, it's not talked about much, but metta is also a concentration practice. It's a samatha practice as well. So here what's really happening is that we're, um, the mind stream itself is being purified so that when we turn towards phenomena, we can see them more clearly. And, and we'll talk more about the differences in this later. And then Vipassana is really seeing phenomena as they truly are. So here we're taking the awareness, whereas the Samatha is more of inward. We're really doing practices that affect the mind stream more inwardly in the Vipassana. We're really meeting phenomena, whether it's our own thinking and mental processes or phenomena that's taken in through the senses, you know, in the Outer world uh, and seeing those in a more in the more of their natural state in a more uh, truthful state is really the direction that vipassana goes.
1: So, in terms of the the a- actual focusing more on the practice, uh, we've talked about that this is a, a practice of being in the present moment. It's really important that we're just being here, by returning to the anapana spot every time we notice awareness has shifted, we're bringing ourselves back to the present moment. And the whole practice unfolds in this present moment. So we're we're really trying to narrow that time frame to not, uh, again, wander to the past or the future, but really just be here with our breath. With each breath, it's a new moment. So it's a new opportunity to be with the breath each time we do it. And one of the differences in this meditation than other meditations is that the knowing the breath in the present moment as it's crossing the anapana spot is our only object so if mm-hmm. if the breath is elsewhere we're, we're noticing it in the abdomen and in the, in the chest elsewhere we return to the anapana spot if we notice other qualities happening we're not going and taking those as a meditative object. The the breath crossing the Anupana spot is the only object for much of this practice. So we're we're focusing exclusively on that, and that's a difference from other practices. We're not going to what's predominant. We're not evaluating. We're not looking at the characteristics or noting. We're just being with the breath. So that's um, important. And one way to think of this is it's sort of like you, know, you hear every every New Year's people take New Year's resolutions, and a common one is people sign up for gym memberships to go, and you know, I'm gonna get in shape this year, that's it, I'm doing it. And you go to the gym and first pick up some weights, and oh my God, have these weights gotten heavier or what? <laughs> and so, but over time, and, and, and coming back in repetition, we find, oh look, I can do these more easily. People can graduate to larger weights. And much like this practice, every time we return to the breath crossing at the anapana spot. Every time we move away from the thinking or the pictures or the story or the narrative or whatever your particular distraction is, we're building the muscle of concentration. So we're getting, we're going to get better and better and better at this. And people just, they do, they get more settled Mm -hmm. and they get more intimately uh, present with the breath there. So it's really just a matter of having that discipline of returning again and again and again. So, uh, as we mentioned, one of the questions we get a lot is about feeling the breath and what's the relationship to, to the skin there. Is, the, is really the skin the object? And it's like the gentleman the question about the warmth and th- these qualities. It, it's a little esoteric to say, know the breath crossing here. Well, how do you know it? Uh, well, a lot of us know it by movement. We can feel things like the gentleman said, warmth but but we're not using those as investigative tools. We're using them as a support for knowing that it's present. Uh, and, and there comes a time when we don't need to use things like warmth or, or movement or what have you, because the awareness stays there more naturally. And one of the metaphors we use for this is about a toll taker. And you've all crossed the bridges here in the Bay Area, and know uh, those that have toll takers still. Um, it's like being a toll taker in that booth. and our primary job is to focus what passes that window. You know, we're not concerned with cars on the bridge, we're not concerned with cars approaching. We're concerned only with that ca- whatever car is in front of our window. And in the same way, we don't follow the breath into the body, and we don't follow the breath away from the body. We stay right here at the anapana spot, watching the breath just right here. And uh, people will say, well, I can't feel the breath, or I can feel only the inhale or the exhale. Well, again, like our toll taker, what does the toll taker do when there's no cars, when there's nothing in the window? They wait. And we do the same thing. We try to maintain the awareness on the on, upon the spot, and we wait to notice the breath, to be with the breath. And if we can't discern it, we just continue to wait. And again, with increased concentration, this will be detected. We we have uh, uh, 100% of the time people report that they do get uh, in contact with the breath enough to do the meditation. Uh, on retreats. On retreats, <laughs> yeah. So, so it, is, it, it is possible for everyone, and some people feel like, well, I, I must be the exception, and we haven't seen an exception yet. We even have a couple people who have nasal medical issues, and so they can't breathe through the nose at all, and they find a way to breathe through their mouth and feel the breath uh, up there, which is very tricky. But anyway, for those of you that can breathe normally, this is really the way to do it. Uh, It's very important to also, when you're doing the practice and today, to really put down other meditations and techniques you know. Because we have a a, a way of approaching this as humans, where we want to do something we're good at, and then we want to sort of shift over real quick to the new meditation we're trying to learn. Like, I'll get a good running start is the idea. And it's very important in this meditation, it's a building of concentration. So we really need to start fresh and just put away temporarily all of the ways we know to meditate or to be with ourselves and just really naturally let let the awareness land on the breath. That's really the most important thing.
0: Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And also there are other, I would say, maybe styles. There are a number of styles of concentration meditation, even so even if you've maybe studied with people who are in different lineages, there may be some variation. So if you're wanting to learn sort of how it is in the Powak tradition, that's what we're offering today. So we're, you know, we we can't really comment on others and we haven't done others. This is what we learn, this is what we're teaching. But just so that you know there are some other styles out there and there is difference between them. Right.
1: And for us it's not a we're not saying this is better. We're saying this is what we know.
0: Right, right. So that's sort of an overview of, of the practice. We'll give more instructions before the next sitting, and then we'll have another Q&A after that so you can be experimenting with it. But this should give you a pretty good basis for trying it out and seeing what happens. But what is concentration? You know, We're going to spend a whole day talking about concentration meditation, so it's important to really understand what is concentration, how... How are we framing it? And also, how is it framed in Buddhism? Because there is some specificity about this. So um, a lot of times, unfortunately, concentration is associated with a lot of striving and efforting. And the fact that we have the word concentration just as a normal English word doesn't really help us much because... um, Usually, if I'm going to concentrate on something, there's a sense of like, you know, I was I did a lot of driving over the last few days, and there was some really bad heavy traffic. Oh, I better concentrate. You know, there's there isn't much ease in that, so there can be a sense of overlaying what we already know about concentration onto the practice, and we're asking you to to, to we're inviting you to let go of those. Particular ways of um, thinking about the word concentration and and what you're doing when you're meditating, because it's not helpful. This is a serenity practice, and we need to bring our best effort to it. So we're not just falling asleep while we're doing it. You know, we need to, there is a certain sharpness of mind, which is really one of the benefits of the practice, is that. But we don't, we can leave the striving. So it's just something to watch for in your own practice. If you find yourself doing a lot of striving, that's added. It's not really helping. Um, so in concentration, then, there are three, three types that are known within, within Buddhism in the progression of concentration and how it deepens. And I'll talk about, um, first, how this works in concentration practice, but also a momentary practice like Vipassana also has concentration. So this is the first place to distinguish any concentration practice. So if you're doing metta or... In this case, we're teaching Anapanasati today, or even in other traditions outside Buddhism, where maybe you look at a candle flame, you know, all of these, or a mantra, even within Buddhism, there are mantras, um, Budo, you know, is one of the mantras that's used. These are all single object practices. Whereas in a momentary practice, like Vipassana, we start with the breath, but over time, if you do Vipassana, you know, longer, the object really becomes the present moment where whatever is predominant in the present moment, whether it's a sound, and now I'm hearing my voice, and I'm noticing that I have a pain in my hip, and you know, now I'm on the breath, there's, the content of the meditation is going to change. So the same is true in a lot of Zen practices in Tibetan practices of, of Rigpa. Those are all momentary practices. So that's the first place where it, it's different, is that momentary practices are cultivating one thing and concentration practices are cultivating something else. Um, but there, are, both of them can develop concentration. It's just that the concentration can go farther in a practice where you have a single object to the exclusion of everything else, where you're just coming back over and over, all you're doing is coming back to the breath at the Anapana spot over and over. That's all you're doing, really. So the first stage then is called momentary concentration. So this is just where we're with the object, more moments in a row, and um, we're starting to get a little bit of continuity with the object, and then we go off into thinking or whatever. And then we come back. And so there's, there's, more, there's more concentration than there would be if you were just not meditating at all. So that's momentary concentration. It's starting to get some continuity. And this is available in both practices. Then the next stage is called access concentration. And sometimes this is also referred to as neighborhood concentration because it's in the neighborhood of jhana, but it isn't actually a full jhana absorption. And these are also available in both kinds of practices. So so access concentration is available in both the Samatha and the Vipassana. And the characteristics of access concentration, um, there's a big range of access concentration. So at first, when one is experiencing this, and it really, it, it is something that can be experienced in a daily practice or Today, the the very sort of beginning levels, maybe, of access concentration. But you're not going to have a deep access concentration unless you're on retreat. So just to give you, to be realistic, it is something that deepens as we're with the object more and more, and maybe we're sitting for one minute, and then five minutes, and then maybe 10 minutes without ever going off the object, or only going off once in a while. So in the, in the Samatha practice, that means pretty much we're resting with the object without being pulled off, you know, where, where our attention has actually gone off the object completely. Um, that can, can last longer and longer, and it can even be 30 minutes on retreat. Not probably likely in a daily practice when you're, or today, but you know you'll probably, hopefully, notice that it gets maybe better throughout the day That you can be with the object a little bit longer. Um, In a practice like Vipassana, again your object is the present moment. So when you're finding that you can track each moment without losing continuity, you know, you're on your breath and then maybe the bell rings and you get up and you start walking and you don't lose the continuity, that's the excess concentration in Vipassana. So you can see it's a little different, but basically the level of concentration is similar, And there are certain phenomena that can start happening there that Stephen will talk about, I think, this afternoon as we get more into the purification of mind, where as the mind settles, our personality structures that we're familiar with start receding, and more of our true nature can start being experienced directly. And that's pretty awesome when that starts happening. And this is what draws people to meditation, is the opportunity to be free. From some of the ways that we have compulsive thinking, and and, um, whether we're suffering or not, it's not what we really are in our deepest nature. So there's an inherent suffering just in that. Yes, there's a hand back there. Sorry, uh,
1: you talked about access concentration uh, with respect to being pulled away in a thought. If you're meditating and you notice a thought, but
0: you're not pulled away, it's actually 81% of the time, but 99% of the time I'm pulled away. Right. Yeah, that's a really great question. I'm, I'm glad you asked that. So the question was, um, what if a thought comes up and you're not actually pulled away? It's sort of out there, but you're still, yeah, and you'll find we're, we're going to introduce the counting in the next sitting, and you'll find that after a while, if, if your concentration's good, you can keep the counting going and not lose track, and you're thinking in between the numbers. you know. So that's kind of what you're talking about. There's, but even the fact that you can stay with the object and know that there's a thought, and not go to it, that's a higher level of concentration, obviously. So, you know, in terms of a technicality, if you're actually counting minutes, I, I'm not sure how, how you might count it, but really the idea is we're withdrawing our attachment and the compulsiveness to our normal thought patterning. So, even as it's receding, maybe you count that as staying with the object. You know, that's really up to you in terms of how you frame it, but it, if, you're, if you're maintaining continuu- continuity, that's really the most important thing.
1: It, it, it's helpful to think of this more like a dimmer switch than an on and off switch. So it isn't that every time we have a thought, okay, I'm off the object. It's, we can have thoughts just as right now someone can walk by the windows here. We don't have to all stop and turn and watch that person. You know, that's what we're doing with thinking. But we can still know someone's walking by, and that's no problem. So that's what we're really looking for, is again, we're not trying to eliminate anything. We're just trying to stay with the object and allow whatever is going on in the mind or in the body or elsewhere just... To happen. Uh,
0: right, so. yeah. So those things can recede and if they're there and we're not getting pulled off, then it kind of doesn't matter that much right. at some point. It's and, and there is neutrality. The, yeah, and there is the possibility again on retreat most likely. Although I guess it could happen some in daily practice where there just isn't that much thinking. So these are all possibilities within the range of access concentration. And then there's the last level which is um, full full absorption. So this is what is technically known as jhana, as a full jhana absorption. And one of the things that's kind of difficult about this is that um, sometimes when people are really experiencing a deep access concentration, they might think it's a full jhana absorption because it just feels so different than normal consciousness. And this is where you really need a teacher to help you because, I mean, it's not, in some ways, it's not that important. Is it a full John absorption or not? You're still, the purification of mine is still happening. So it, it's not like full jhana absorption is the only thing that's of value. All that access concentration is also value. The difference is with a full jhana absorption, that is a non-dual state. So we can't, the me... The I that is doing, that is trying to have jhana rise, can't make that happen because the actual jhana absorption is a state in which that sense of duality between me and really my nature or true nature, we shouldn't even say my, breaks down. So at first when one is doing the practice for a long, long time, it's a fairly advanced stage where there can be a sense of that arising um, at any time that there's an inclination towards it. It is something that happens when the apple is ripe. You know, a full John absorption only happens when the mind stream is unified enough that um, awareness is really pulled in to this experience of being completely free temporarily of our personality structure. And at that, in the full jhana absorption, it is so purifying. I mean, the intensity of the purification of that is like exponentially greater in some ways, at least at first when, if one experiences that, that the purification on the mind stream is really um, dramatic. And so this is really where, and that is only going to happen on retreat, and it doesn't happen to everybody. I mean, it is something where... Um, it just takes enough purification for the mindstream to be at a point where that is even possible. But the good news is that regardless of whether that happens or not, the mindstream is being purified and people are changing. I mean, we're seeing this now that we've been teaching five or six years. Um, people are changing and they're, <laughs> they have more freedom. And it doesn't, Jhana arising doesn't have to happen for that to be true. So, um, it's can I jump in? Yeah.
1: It's it, it's really critical to be to really keep in mind that the purification of mind starts <laughs> with every time we return to the breath crossing at the anapana spot, there's a purification of mind occurring and it just develops from there as the concentration deepens. There you know, we're just we're just losing we're we're cultivating a neutrality towards our pa- our own patterning. Right. And that's really where where the freedom comes in too. It doesn't mean you lose yourself. It just means you you lose the or you diminish the compulsive qualities of needing to do it this certain way or needing to react this certain way or really being in love with our own thoughts. I mean, that's really what it comes down to on, for many people.
0: Yeah. So and then at the same time, so as the the compulsivity is dropping and the access to our own nature is increasing, we can be more and more there's more direct experience. So this is where when the Buddha says, don't take my word for it, experience it for yourself, we can start tasting this for ourselves. Uh, can you, maybe I'm missing something, can you explain what you mean more, uh, what purification of mind? We'll do a whole section on that this afternoon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, it's really like, um, like in a flashlight, we should actually bring one, where at first, you know, a flashlight, one of those camping flashlights that's a lantern and then it gradually, you know, you can turn it into a flashlight. The momentary concentration is really, our awareness is really going in a lot of directions, you know, but there is the light of awareness and we're trying to apply it. And then if we push the the flashlight where there's a wide beam, that's more like the access concentration where we are starting to focus but sometimes with those flashlights, if you turn them, the beam gets a lot more narrow. And this is really what's happening with as we, the concentration gets deeper and deeper, is that our own awareness is starting to become laser-like. And when we were writing our book, our, our editor kept saying, what's laser-like? Can you describe that? So we did some research on lasers. And, and laser beams are actually um, light. They are light, and they are so powerful that they can cut through metal. So this is what's happening to our awareness that as this concentration, as, a, as the awareness we already have starts coming together and unifying, we have access to things that are outside of normal perception.
1: And, and we can penetrate our own conditioning. Right. And this is part of the liberation of Buddhism, is we're, yeah. we're, we're penetrating our own patterning, our own story, our own history to see what's true, what's alive, that's not dependent on our history, on our patterning, and on our psychological makeup.
0: So I think maybe, maybe instead of taking questions, we should go to the break. Yeah, we're yeah. going to take
1: a break now. And this is a great opportunity to try the meditation while you're moving. This, because like on retreats, we really encourage a continuity, meaning that it, it's a ceaseless meditation. So normally, the way that works is you'll start with you know I'll ring the bell and we'll we'll just sit for a minute while the bell sound recedes and just be with the breath at the anapana spot and then after the bell sound ends, you can just arise as slowly as you need to and walk and there's no specific walking in this practice. The most important thing is being with the breath at the anapana spot, so you want to make sure to be as uh, to have as close of contact as you can and then. Uh, go about your movement to whatever you need to do, take a, a break. And we uh, ask you to please be silent during the break, to really be with yourself, and just see what it's like. Question?
0: Sorry, I wasn't here for the very beginning, but so just to make totally sure what the, the
1: Anupana is. a spot is the territory between the rim of the nostrils and the upper lip. And some for some people, it's the entire area. They feel it, it could be like a
0: region. A
1: region. For others, it's a very specific spot. And that just depends on you. So there's no right answer on that. But someplace in there, just allow your awareness to rest on the breath as it's moving out of the
0: nostrils. Yeah, just know your breath there. You're not going to have 100% of your awareness there, obviously. you know. So there's a percentage. But even if you can leave 10% of right. your awareness there as you're going to the bathroom or if you if you want to walk outside and stretch your legs, we're going to have a 20-minute break. So you can walk. You can walk at any speed. But the difference from this with Vipassana is you're not now shifting to the feet and the movement of the walking. You can walk as fast as you want. You can walk as slow as you want, but maintain some awareness on the breath at the Anupana spot and just play with that and see what it's like for you. And
1: and remember to think of it as a dimmer switch. So we're not saying it's either on or off. We're we're just trying to see if it's 10%. Let's try and be aware of the 10% and maybe increase a little bit more to 12% or 15%, but just So just try to be on there as best you can. It's not, it isn't either 100% or zero. That's important.
0: So we'll come back at 1120.